0: Hey there, welcome to the Happy Habit Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew. I like to talk health and well being every Monday and Thursday. If you are new, welcome. Thank you for stopping by the podcast. Over 276 episodes in the archive. If you have the time and interest to peruse some of those episodes, that would be brilliant. Also, if you feel you know people in your life who might get value from this podcast series, by all means, share news of this podcast. Sharing is caring now regular listeners will know among other things i like to talk to experts about subjects i think you will find very interesting and today's expert is absolutely going to be of interest to many of you. Let me start by saying that back pain is widespread in the global adult population. Some estimates of lifetime prevalence are as high as 84%, meaning you have an 84% chance of enduring back pain at some point in your lifetime. In 2017, it was estimated that around 7.5% of the global population, 577 million people at that time, were suffering from chronic low back pain. The global burden of disability associated with low back pain has been increasing since 1990 every single year. Studies in European countries indicate the total costs associated with low back pain could be as high as 2% of gross domestic product, which is absolutely enormous. In the UK alone, 12 million work days are lost per year to low back pain. Globally, that figure is 264 million days lost to work because of low back pain so needless to say back pain is a huge global problem and if you haven't suffered from it to date the likelihood is that you will experience it at some time the good news though is that i'm talking with a man today an expert who can help to prevent you from becoming another back pain statistic. Astonishingly, by performing three simple exercises daily and being mindful of how you sit and how long you sit for, plus incorporating regular movement into your day, you can ward off the chance of you becoming another back pain sufferer. Today I'm honoured to be speaking with one of the world's leading back specialists, Dr Stuart McGill. A distinguished Professor Emeritus at the University of Waterloo, where he was a professor for 30 years. His laboratory and experimental research clinic investigated issues relating to the causes of back pain, how to rehab back pain and enhance both injury resilience and performance. His advice is often sought out by governments, corporations, legal experts, medical groups and elite athletes and teams around the world. He's also the author of hundreds of peer-reviewed scientific studies and the brilliant book, Back Mechanic. I know you work
1: with and have worked with elite athletes down through the decades. Now, while my listeners won't necessarily fall into that category, uh, they will be able to, to glean some advice from your expertise and experience garnered over those three, four decades uh, working with the elites. Can I ask you initially, what is it about the back that causes us so many problems? Uh, why do we experience so many back problems? And uh, is it primarily down to lack of movement? Is it that sedentary lifestyle that we indulge in the these days? Is it the complexity of the back itself, or is it all of the above?
2: It's the latter. It's all of the above. So if we get back to the fundamentals of all of this, pain isn't normal. There's a reason for it. You may have heard uh, of people being diagnosed with non-specific back pain. Well, in my world, after having probed the system with experiments for what, over 30 years at the university, we converged on this idea of all back pain is very specific. So when you said all of the above, it truly is. If we take a biological foundation, our body thrives on physical stress, too little, and you deteriorate, and you become weak and non-resilient. Too much, you then accumulate stress and the tissues will first, its discomfort, then its pain, and then its injury if the uh, stress continues. So there's a tipping point there. The the key uh, to it all is to have sufficient movement of the right type to stimulate adaptations, create better fitness, and uh, create more resilience and higher performance without pain. So that's in a nutshell. Now the key is we live in an age where it's dominated by computers. Many people sit in front of the computer for eight hours and they go to the gym and have a total blowout with heavy weights for an hour. Those don't really go hand in hand in terms of creating optimal spine health or even health for the body in, in my view. But uh, you, you're familiar with my book and the approach there is to optimize spine health by creating mobility at the hips and shoulders Uh, as humans we have to walk it's a fundamental health requirement Uh, but the key to to that is to determine what kind of spine challenges the person has and tune the walking do they go for a good walk every day or do they break it up and have several Uh, Doses of walking, sometimes uh, just a few minutes every hour uh, would better suit them and don't sit too long, don't lift too heavy, Uh, but uh, as we uh, discussed in the intro I I had an Irish father and I can still remember uh, around the dinner table, boy, moderation in all things, but a little bit of what tickles your fancy is good for you.
1: That's certainly certainly good advice. You mentioned your book. Let me just give you give the name of the book to the listeners. It's called Back Mechanic. It was released uh, back in uh, 2015 and it talks about back pain myths, the causes of back pain, building a resilient back and good spine health. And I'm only sorry this book wasn't out 10 years ago when I ruptured a disc in my lower back, my L4, L5. And um, that subsequently on the sciatic pain, I went through as a result of that rupture, uh, then fostered an interest in back health and spine health in me. Uh, so I'm only, I'm only sorry this book wasn't available at that point. We were talking about spine health. What does spine health look like?
2: Well, I guess it depends on who we're talking about. If we're talking about uh, someone uh, like our mother, for example, spine health would be, are they able to play with the grandchildren, go shopping? uh socialize with their friends without pain be able to walk navigate stairs those kinds of things but for someone like you i I know you like to uh, train and swim at the pool and this is all part of who you are and uh, your daily routine then uh the answer in philosophy is the same you want to be commensurate in your resilience and your performance none of those will get you to the olympics you know, it's it's funny, and I'm quite proud of this. Some of the greatest uh, boxing coaches come from Ireland, and they really understand the sweet science. And a lot of the great Irish fighters are not big, muscular people, but they use their core very strategically. The punch comes from the, the, the trailing foot up through the leg, And then as the hips turn, they turn a stiffened spine or a stiffened core. And then as the shoulder approaches the target, the arm snaps. And it's a marvelous athleticism, but it requires core strength isn't really the right word, but it's. The ability to turn the muscles on rapidly, create the stiffness, transfer the hip power through the torso to the shoulder and create a a very effective strike. So there's three different people and three somewhat different takes on uh, your, your question.
1: You mentioned core strength there and stability. How can the your ordinary everyday person, somebody who isn't, let's say, a pugilist or somebody who isn't operating at the elite level, how can they maintain that core strength in order that they optimize their spinal health going forward?
2: I love the word pugilist. You make it sound so nice. <laughs> well, again, it depends on who we're talking uh, about here, but I mentioned the idea of transferring power, so let me just go back into a little bit of a anatomy lesson here. The spine is a flexible rod. That comes in very handy to tie your shoes and uh, do these sorts of tasks. However, it doesn't help you if you were to lift 100 pounds off the ground or 50 kilo or something like that. No engineer would design a flexible rod and load it in compression. It would buckle and collapse. So you're tuning this flexible rod with muscular activation. Now, when a muscle contracts, it creates force, but it also creates stiffness. A very strong elbow flexor, for example, freezes the arm and you can't move it. So now we have to move in pulses. So the first requirement then is this core stiffness through the Muscle girdle action around the core and there's muscles in the front of the spine on either side and in the back and they coordinate to create this girdle of controlling stiffness. So how do you train it if a person has had a back pain history, the first thing we do is assess them or guide them through a self assessment in the book so that they understand their starting level. A very low starting level might be simply doing a front plank on the wall, a push-up on the kitchen table, a side plank on the wall, and a bird dog, which, as you know, is on your hands and knees, and you raise one arm and the opposite leg. But if you've had knee replacement, the game changes. You know, you will stand, again, at your kitchen table, put both hands on the table, and do a standing bird dog. But the point is, it's an isometric exertion. And then as we go through the spectrum of ability in people, we will increase the challenge with various exercise forms, again, that I I show in the book. But the key there is to create this controlling stiffness. And, uh, you know, it's funny, Matthew, when I talk to people who are non-athletes and they say, okay, I've mastered the bird dog. Now what's the next progression? Can I put weights on my ankles and feet? And I say, no. Just do it. And then I remind them that uh, Usain Bolt, the fastest human on Earth, does them. (laughs) You know, some of the supreme athletes do this to create this tuning of the core that I'm talking about. So uh, it's quite humbling for some people, but uh, I hope you have found that it gives you some resilience for a while after you've done them.
1: It's extraordinary because these are very, very basic exercises. There's no special load on there. You're not lifting weights like you alluded to there. And a lot of these exercises that you mentioned, the the three you mentioned there, um, a lot of the listeners will have done yoga at one point or another and will have experience doing these exercises in in yoga. So these are very simple exercises to do going forward in order to give you that core stability that you were talking about, which is an investment in your back health for the future
2: it is i uh love that notion of an investment in your health i wish more people would uh consider that because uh now i've got uh, white hair and i'm considered a, a senior fellow it, it's it's a lot better to have a a few bob in your pocket as my <laughs> father would say and be healthy than um uh, sick and poor, you know, <laughs>
1: Well, I, I mention I mentioned investment simply because I probably didn't make a great enough attempt to to put that investment in prior to my having ruptured a disc. Now, so I'm saying this now to other people who are listening now to put the investment in such that they don't go through the same experience that I had to go through with sadic pain and all of that, you know,
2: that that's the craziness of life of of being young. And uh, would you have listened to an older fella saying, Matthew, here's what you should do to uh, have a happier life. And uh, I know I wouldn't have listened and uh, I went through it too. So, uh, but anyway, uh, I don't know, honestly, how truly persuasive I am in changing a person's behavior to lessen the risk and give them a better life however i'm usually called in after they have had the experience you just described and have been frustrated now there are fantastic physical therapists chiropractors physical medicine docs Uh, However, there's an awful lot of people walking around saying, you know, I've been to eight or 10 different so-called spine experts and I'm not better, now I hear you're different. So those are the kinds of people I see, I see the failures. And uh, then they are motivated to listen. And uh, I'll throw this in as well because it's uh, a very important point. Can you imagine walking down the street And someone comes up behind you and sticks a small knife in your back and they repeatedly do it every few months you never know they're there you never know they're coming the bogeyman now I've just described many acute attacks that some people experience with that subcategory of back pain by this point in time they've they've got PTSD post-traumatic stress disorder fearing when the next bogeyman is going to strike because they're unaware of what the mechanism is so at that point i have their attention and i can say well here's the mechanism when you bend forward you stiffen the hips and you bend through your spine and then you pull or lift that sets up the hydraulic uh, mechanics to Create eventually with enough repetition a disc bulge. However, if you move from the hips and I show this in the book, we call it the shortstop squat where we put the hands making a V with the thumb and the fingers and that's where we place the kneecap. So we slide the hands down the thighs, grab the kneecaps hard and then shape the back pumping up like a camel inflection, and then extending the back to create a little bit of a hollow, and then to stand up. Don't lift with the back, but pull the hips through, like a champion powerlifter or a weightlifter. Now, in that way, we've just eliminated the possibility of the bogeyman striking. So this is very empowering for those people who've never been given the explanation of why the bogeyman strikes, and they've never been given the antidote or the preventative measure that cures their PTSD. As soon as they realize they are now in control, the psychological dissonance disappears, and uh, they become empowered. So that's when the magic happens.
1: Well, you, you mentioned pain being a signal, but how often is it a case that not experiencing pain can be worse, particularly if you are active and, or, or if you're sitting and you're slouching all the time. Um, how is that accumulation of non-pain uh, a problem? And how does, that, how does that present itself then later on?
2: Well, it is. Uh, now, to, to give a little bit of an anatomy lesson, the disc, which is the major joint of the spine, in its, well, let's call it the virgin uninjured state, it doesn't have nerves inside it so the cumulative micro trauma occurring in the disc it, it's it, the person is unaware there's nothing to really sense it until the very end when the nucleus of the disc the gel it, and I'm only talking about this particular subcategory of, of injury as an example but the nucleus works its way through the fibers of the annulus see the annulus is not a ball and socket joint like a hip it's a biological fabric so if i wanted to work a hole in my shirt which is a fabric i would create stress strain reversals back and forth on a small portion of my shirt and it would eventually delaminate and tear well if my shirt was holding fluid in behind it the fluid would seep through the delamination and this is what happens to to discs so Uh, It's not until the gel actually comes through the delamination and sets off a massive inflammatory response because the immune system says, you know, what's this new stuff? Uh, I've never seen this before in the body and it attacks it, creating a very heavy inflammatory, very painful response. So there's an example of how unbeknownst to the person, their choice of mechanics is leading to this uh, cumulative uh, micro damage that they're unawares of.
1: Again, it, it goes back to, and I'm talking about everyday ordinary people here, it, it goes back to them really being proactive as far as their own spinal health and hygiene and stability, core stability are concerned. Because otherwise, they'll end up seeing a back specialist or a chiropractor or or a, an, an osteopath or whatever it is in order to try to get to the root cause of whatever is Causing their issue.
2: Well, that would be uh, in the ideal world, but uh, I've mentioned to you my my frustration. Now I've done all this work for me to convince young people. Uh, it's somewhat akin to smoking. All of the science we know today, and yet there are still some people who start smoking, and the passage of it is that there's a delayed response you know you don't smoke a cigarette today and get cancer tomorrow it's a 20 year or longer uh, relationship and so it is with backs as well so do you see if I use the uh, smoking kind of analogy people say well you know I I can do this with my back or even other parts of my body it it won't happen to me I won't get smoking from I won't get cancer from smoking and I won't get a a disc herniation and uh, you know have to change my job or whatever see you and I, I I could work with a with a disc bulge or uh a spine fracture or something like that, because I was a professor. But if I was uh, an electrician or a plumber or fixed roads, I would have to change my job. So... (laughs) (laughs) Um,
1: I'm always fascinated with evolution and how we developed from an evolutionary standpoint. And obviously, as you alluded to at the outset of of this chat, that uh, walking is really paramount as far as movement is concerned, because the human body is designed to walk and we're not designed to sit in front of the TV for six, eight hours a day or in front of a computer. And all of those lifestyle changes that we have adopted in recent generations uh, are a huge contributor to uh, the problem. Problems that you see then that accumulate down through the ears and then manifest in back problems.
2: Yeah, I've got a couple of uh, comments about your comment there. Uh, First of all, we've explained how the core is a three-dimensional girdle structure around this flexible rod, the spine. So the sides of the core are the oblique muscles, the psoas muscles, etc., what exercises challenge those and develop them well when you think about it if you were to do a lift in the gym or uh, a bench press or a push-up none of those challenge the sides these are all exercises as we call this plane called the sagittal plane and they challenge the front and back but for me to walk if i stand on one leg I had to, to create leg swing. I, do you see how I have to lift my pelvis up some, and support it? So walking really is the fundamental exercise to create the lateral core, the lateral guy wire system. So it really is uh, fundamental. But another, uh, can I leave that topic? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. Feel free, Yep. Because you, you, you made me think of something else. And it has to do with, we live in a linkage. Our skeleton is a linkage driven by muscles and controlled by connective tissues, et cetera. So I'm going to start this uh, theme with a discussion of orthopedic disease prevalence around the world. So let's look across Caucasian Europe. Now let's go to Eastern Europe. The highest rate of hip dysplasia is in Poland. Ukraine, Bulgaria, but the epicenter is Poland. Now, hip dysplasia is a very shallow hip socket.
1: You're holding up a a pelvis. I I hope it's not a a real pelvis. No, it's a plastic one, (laughs) but it's
2: a person's pelvis, spine, and I'm showing the hip joint. So there is the ball in the socket forming the hip. Now, you see there's a bony socket which defines the range of motion as the femur the leg bone collides with the front of the socket on the pelvis side a dysplastic hip has a very shallow hip socket so yes it's a high rate of uh, dysplasia but think of an olympic lift where the li- lifters squat very deeply down and pull a bar and do the snatch and lift it overhead back into the deep squat and lift it do you know where the Olympic lifters come from who do that?
1: You're, go- you're going to say Eastern Europe, Poland, probably.
2: <laughs> Poland, yeah, because it is such a wonderful mechanical advantage. They They don't get femoral acetabular impingement. So the rate of hip dysplasia, which is a negative, allows the positive of that athleticism, the deep squat. Now we're going to go to the Celtic nation which is Ireland, Scotland, Normandy, France, Basque of Spain, they have the deepest hip sockets. Now, I'm not saying every Irishman has a deep (laughs) socket, but on, 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 on national average, they do. So the deep hip socket means that when you bring the knee up, instead of falling into the armpit, it collides, and the person gets FAI, femoral acetabular impingement. So that is pain in the crease of the top of the leg and thigh. So if I was to do a hip exam on the typical Celtic hip, I had them, I, I've been hip replaced because a very high rate of hipness, uh replacement occurs in the Celtic nations. Do you see how I'm colliding the bone now And if I do an exam, my knee creates a square shape, whereas the dysplastic hip, the Eastern European hip, that knee can go right up into the armpit without any stress. So if I sit with my knees together, I'm getting discomfort in my hips the body's reaction is to round out and stress my spine. But if I sat with my knees apart and my feet underneath me, I alleviate that hip stress when I get out of the chair and and, or, or sit for a period of time. Anyway, my point in all of this is the exercises and the way that we tune that type of hip structure very much depends on the, uh, the anatomy so there is a little bit of a story how hip structure influences spine stress and it's different around the world there are some uh, asian populations for example with uh, I, I mean the shallowest hip socket is in okinawa japan but go look at the martial arts of Okinawa, Japan, it is a very, you know, to throw a person in Okinawan uh, karate and judo is to get the hips very low under the center of the mass of the apart- the opponent and whatnot. When you look at a, a arch typical Eastern European hip doing uh, a lift of an Olympic bar off the ground, they're very powerful out of the hole. And then if they're going to fail in the lift, it's at lockout when they're standing up, pulling the hips through. Then you take the typical Celtic hip, which is deeper. They fail in the initial part, getting the bar moving off the ground. But once the bar crosses the knee, they hit second gear. and They don't fail as a rule uh, at lockout. So it's a very strong standing strength. But again, you look at the martial art, it's perfect for boxing and and, uh, stand-up. I'm not saying every pole or every Irishman has that hip, but uh, there certainly is a national average there. And uh, it's manifested in uh, the orthopedic disease rates and also the relationship of uh, uh, hip pathology function and spine pathology and function.
1: No, that, that is fascinating, particularly being a, a Celt and an Irish man myself. Can I ask you then, you mentioned earlier on those exercises, those stabilizing exercises, the, the bird dogs and the, and the planks to, to, to give you that uh, core stabilization. Can these exercises, if they're practiced then daily or several times a week, can these help to offset then uh, any of these um, anatomical anomalies based on geography that you've just mentioned there?
2: Well, I've got two points to make on that issue. You are not going to change the anatomy through stretching or yoga or anything else. That's a state variable and it is what it is. What you do have the option on is managing. Now I can give you some uh, evidence. When I ran the uh, experimental research clinic for back pain at the university, we followed up with every patient that we ever saw. So we would assess them, we would subclassify their pain, and then we'd follow up after two years to find out how they were doing. Of those who were uh, told, you've tried everything, you've tried the physio, the chiropractor, the osteopath, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, it's all failed, the last thing for you is surgery. So if that's the category that you were in when you came to the university, And we gave you a program which probably included the big three, the bird dog, the side plank, and curl up to answer your question. Do you know, Matthew, 95% of them avoided surgery and they were glad that they did in a two-year follow-up. So that is the evidence I can present for the effectiveness of those exercises. They don't change the anatomy, but they uh, help Um, I'm I'm not going to use the word stabilize, but they they tune the body. It's mobility about the hips and stability in the core.
1: So say that again, because that is probably the crucial message from this chat today. Those three very simple exercises can can mitigate and offset the potential development of back problems later on if you just engage in doing them multiple times per week.
2: Yes. Uh, in fact, we would say do them every day. And if you're just an average person, more is not better. The right amount is better. So we would say 10 second holds. And I learned this in Russia on how to prescribe those exercises. The Russians were... The Americans and Canadians, and I, I think uh, Ireland and, and the UK in general as well, thinks to become endurable, you have to do something for a long period of time and get tired. The Russian philosophy was not that. They trained endurance by doing short repetitions with little rest breaks. So they didn't get tired, but they still trained uh, endurance, And that was a real key in a breakthrough. So that's why we prescribe when you do a bird dog do a 10 second hold, uh, you know the form you start on all fours and you extend the opposite arm and the opposite leg with conscious core contraction that's another key so you're you're creating a muscle memory so when we move we create movement tapes or they're called engrams in neuroscience so the basic forms are teaching your brain Uh, these muscle memories and movement patterns to move about the hips and control the spine. You hold it for 10 seconds and then you tap the floor with your hand and your knee, which gives a new perfusion of blood. And we've measured oxygenation in the muscles and that sort of thing. And then you do another 10 second hold and then a third 10 second hold. Then you do three on the other side. Now you have a micro break of maybe 20 seconds. Now do two reps on the right, two on the left, micro break one rep uh, on either side so that's what we called the russian descending period a 3-2-1 pyramid uh the same with the side plank the same with that modified uh curl up that we do which really doesn't curl the spine at all it's more of a isometric hover uh, so a lot of science went into coming up with that prescription for the average person now some people will say well this gives me my my uh, neck soreness all right well we offer (laughs) suggestions if that's the case uh, in the book or i've had knee replacement i can't go on my and so we you know we, we 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 morph those basic forms to suit the uh various spectrum of the public but uh yes that combined with interval walks uh combined with just common sense. Don't sit for eight hours. If you have a sitting job, it's not in your best interest to sit in front of the television at night either. You you know, it's uh, put all that together and you will recover from this plague of back pain that's limiting your life. Not all the time, but I can tell you if you were slated for surgery, 95% of the time, and I have measured that and I can stand by that.
1: Well, Dr. Stuart McGill, absolutely fascinating talking with you today. Can I tell the listeners again, the name of your book, it's A Back Mechanic, and it's it's really a Bible for anybody who is looking to make that investment in their spinal health. I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me today, Dr. Stuart McGill.
2: Oh, thank you very much, Matthew. I've enjoyed it.